The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Well, good morning and welcome to Ambassador Baptist Church here on Father's Day. And let me just say to all the dads here today, congratulations. And we're so proud of each and every one of you. Uh, This week, I had the opportunity to ponder for a moment fatherhood within the current culture in which we live. And it's amazing to me how the society and the world in which we dwell in seeks to put so much emphasis and get men to find their identity in so many other things rather than Christ and the roles that God has put into their lives. There's nothing wrong with having a good career and climbing the corporate ladder or having a hobby that you enjoy, but it's amazing to me how society really has de-elevated or demoted the role of fatherhood in the world in which we live. And I want to say here today, if you have the privilege of having children, and I realize not everybody here uh, has that grace, but for those of you who do, I want to take a moment and just elevate that role in your life. Um, There are so many things that we seek to get our identity from, to get our sense of significance and satisfaction. And the world tells us, make more money, climb the corporate ladder. And there are very few voices in our culture that is saying, hey, listen, one of the most noble, one of the most exciting things that you can invest your life in is your children. And uh, I realize there's a place to work hard and there's a place to bring home the bacon and, and make a living. But I would hope here through this church that there would be some people who really thoroughly, deeply understand uh, that this thing of being a father, while diminishing in our culture, is much is as important as it has ever been, if not more so. And so let me encourage you, dads, if you've got kids, man, love on them. Spend time with them. Uh, take the opportunities to invest in their lives. Because as some of you, some of you are finding out, it goes by so quickly. How many of you remember bringing the baby home and all of a sudden now she's a teenager and like, what happened, you know? And life is like a vapor. Use these moments that God's entrusted to you, that he's given to you, and just be it known. While the culture and society may not elevate the role of fatherhood, uh, just know from God's perspective and from heaven's eyes, you are involved in one of the most awesome roles that God has to offer. And we need you, dads. We need you to be men, much like we saw on the video, who are in, just in love with Jesus, who are in love with his word. Uh, kids need dads that are in love with their wives, with their mom, with the, with the, the kids' moms, and, and really just being an example of what it means to, to exemplify the Father's love that he has for us, to be a reflection of that here in our homes to our wives, to our children, so people truly can see the gospel reflected through our lives. We love you. We're proud of each and every one of you as dads, and we're glad you're here uh, today. I know we have a lot out traveling. June's a month where we get a lot of different people on vacation, but I'm glad you're here, and uh, we have a special treat. I'm going to joke with you in a minute. We literally do today have the coolest pastor in all of America with us, and I say that. Uh, our speaker today is a Pastor Cody Cool. His last name is Cool, and so we can say he's the coolest pastor that I personally know, and uh, we're just so glad. He's pastor in Grand Rapids Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting Cody while I was in college, and uh, he and I were roommates uh, probably my junior year, your freshman year. Uh, Cody had been coming to church 
for about six months, kind of came from a background that was a little, maybe some would consider a little bit rougher and around the edges and things like that maybe. And, and uh, I remember uh, the first time we met in our dorm room, the college president thought it would be a good idea for him uh, to room with me. I was the room leader at the time, and for some reason he thought that would, that would be a good idea. And he had been coming to church for six months and literally just, I mean, brand new baby Christian. He hadn't been saved that long and uh, ended up in Bible college. And when he came, he was like, what in the world have I gotten myself into? You know, it just, and uh, I remember he came that first time at the school I went to for chapels. You'd have to wear a, a tie to chapel and things. He never wore a tie in his life. I remember that first week trying to teach him how to tie a tie. And, and uh, we've just become great friends. And I'm so thankful for his emphasis on the gospel. And uh, on this Father's Day, I couldn't think of anybody better to just share a message with us about the Father's love and just bring to us that reminder of all that God is for us. So he's been serving there uh, in Grand Rapids for five years. Uh, when he went to the church there, it was running 20 individuals. They've got voted by 20 folks. I know this last Easter they had just under 800 folks in church and just God's doing a, an exciting thing there. It just got a brand new uh, property. In fact, uh, uh, we're in very similar facilities and uh, he moved into his a little after we moved into ours and we had a lot of phone conversations about how do you make warehouses work for church and all that kind of stuff and, and we've had some good conversations there. Before then he served as an assistant pastor in Las Vegas. Uh, for Pastor Tice, and many of you uh, know Pastor Tice, and so uh, he served there for several years, and uh, was just a huge encouragement to them, and uh, they've got a beautiful family and children, and he might take the opportunity to tell us a little bit more about that, but uh, thank you so much for being our guest here today. I'm so proud to have you as my friend, looking forward to having you preach and being encouraged myself. So Pastor Cody, why don't you come and deliver to us the Word of God? Thank you, Pastor Josh. How's everybody doing this morning? Man, I love being here. I love your pastor. He's my friend, he's my buddy, and uh, he's the same as he was in college, um, OCD. Uh, this place is immaculate. I mean, he pays attention to every detail of this place. I'm the exact opposite. When I showed up at college, I had one suit coat, didn't know how to tie a tie, came in with white socks, and uh, didn't know anything, and this guy was meticulous, and he helped me a ton on how to just look the part in Bible college and show me how to tie a tie, and, and it was great. I, I love your pastor, and, and uh, he, I'll tell you this about him. He loves you. He loves you a ton. He talks about you all the time, prays for you. If that's been a question in your mind that your pastor doesn't care about you, he loves you and cares about you greatly and deeply, and I appreciate him communicating that to me since we've been uh, together this week. Um, he has a burden for your growth. He wants to see you grow and abide in Jesus Christ and, and that you would know your God so much better. There are three different types of churches out there. There's one type of church where they try to manipulate people's behavior. And, um, and, and what I mean by that is, is they use um, guilt. They'll tell their church family, God doesn't love you or God doesn't like you unless you look like this, unless you do this. And, and so they manip they're, they're the type of churches that your pastor would say would be like, kind of like a legalistic church. And then there's the types of churches that try to manufacture an experience. So in order to keep people in their church, we've got to manufacture this experience, get them addicted to the program and to the music. And I'll tell you, that is not your church. That is not your pastor. Your pastor is a gospel-centered pastor. This is a gospel-centered church. 
where he, his desire and the music and everything that goes on around here is to point you to Jesus Christ and to develop a heart for him. And so that's what I appreciate about Ambassador Baptist Church, and I appreciate that about your pastor. Now, like he said, Pastor Josh was, um, was my room leader, and, uh, and uh, I'll tell you, we, uh, we had a great time together, and I'm so thankful for him. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little story in just a minute, but I want, you to, I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter number 14. The book of Mark, chapter number 14. I'm going to read our text, and then we'll get into this. Mark, chapter number 14. I've entitled the message this morning, Keep Calm and Stay on Mission. Keep calm and stay on mission. There's a lot of things in life that will distract us from the mission of Jesus Christ, the mission as a father. I want you to notice with me in our text of Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 72. I'm going to show you three different types of people. Verse number 43 of Mark chapter 14, the Bible says, And immediately while he yet spake cometh Judas, one of the twelve with him, a great multitude with swords and staves, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, says, Master, Master, and kissed him. It's pretty interesting there. And they laid their hands on him and took him and one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching. I was doing this openly, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Verse 53, and they, they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and Peter followed from afar off, even to the palace of the high priest, and he sat with his servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death, and found what? None. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose a certain and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Jesus was talking about his own life. He wasn't talking about a physical body, a physical temple, but his physical body. In verse 59 it says, But neither did, so did their witness agree together. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witness? We have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy, and the servants did strike with the palms of their hands. And as Peter was beneath the palace, there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, And thou also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. And 
he went out into the porch and the cock crew. And the maid saw him again and began to say unto him that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after they stood by again, they stood, they stood by and said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Gal- Galilean, and thy speech agreeth thereunto. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. The second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind the word of Jesus, said unto him, Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereupon, he wept. Lord, I pray that this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture, you would help us, you would teach us. Lord, you would mold us into your image. Lord, help us to stay on mission. Help us to realize that, that you're the author and finisher of our faith and we are to look to you every single day. Lord, help us to be in love with you and help us to understand your love for us. And I do pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had just had gotten saved when I came to West Coast Baptist College where I met uh, your pastor, Pastor Josh. And I remember my first day of school, they gave us this 100-questionnaire exam. And, and I'll tell you what, I took that exam and I got two right. I was pretty proud of that. And uh, I just want you guys to know, after four years, we took that same exam and I got four right this time, doubled my score. Don't want to brag. Uh, but uh, I remember being in the dorm there and, and going to college, and, and, uh, and I struggled a little bit. And I think God was teaching me some important lessons that he's wanting to teach every single one of you. I, uh, I couldn't pay my school bill that first semester. It was tough, you know. And I took my finals late, finally got to pay off. Second semester, the same thing happened. The third semester, the fourth semester... Finally, I'm in the fifth semester of college, and I'm late on my school bill. It's October, and this guy named Dr. Mark Rasmussen gets up in and and chapel, and he says, I want to see all these students right over here, right, right after chapel, by the piano. And, uh, and he names off all of these names, and one of them was mine, and I knew exactly what it was about. It was about my school bill. And I remember sitting there and him saying, now if your bill is not paid at this amount by this time, you need to go home. For the first time in my Christian life, I went back to my dorm room and I started to weep and get honest with God. I literally got on my knees weeping and crying. I was mad. I was crying. I said, God, you sent me here. You want me to be here. And, 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 and you called me to the ministry. And I just told him what he's told me. And I just cried out to him. I said, you need to pay this bill. And I remember getting up off my knees and feeling sorry for myself. And I walked into dinner that night and I was kind of moping around, and you could tell in my countenance I was kind of sad. A guy named Eric Pfeiffer was sitting across from me, and he said, what's wrong? I said, man, I got, I got to get my school bill paid, and I just don't know what to do. And He said, there's this grocery store hiring. It's called Ralph's, and they're going to go on a grocery strike, and they're hiring scabs. I said, all right, I'll go down there. So I, I, I drove down to Ralph's grocery store, and I talked to the manager. manager her name is Laura Trojan. I walked into the store. She said, do you know anything about night stalking? And I said, yeah. You sneak up to people's houses and you look in the windows. I'm kidding. That's not what I said. I, I walked in there. I said, yeah, you, you take the product out of the box. You throw it on the shelf. You break down the box and you go home. That's exactly what I said. She said, you're hired. You start this Saturday at midnight. 
So that midnight, I, I showed up at Ralph's off Avenue K in Lancaster, California. I walked into the grocery store, and there's all these picketers, and they're yelling at me and cursing at me. And I was like, I don't care, man. I got a job, you know. I walk in there, and I start working. I work all night that night. And she made me the night manager. And she didn't tell me anything about what I was getting paid. And so I worked that whole week. Then the next week, I worked that whole week as well. I remember getting my first paycheck. And it was, I opened it up, and, and I couldn't believe it. After taxes in California for one week, it's twelve hundred bucks. I owed three thousand dollars on my bill in October. It was for twelve hundred bucks. I thought it was a mistake. I thought, oh, maybe this is like two weeks worth of work. No, it was one week's worth of work. The next week I got my next paycheck, another twelve hundred. Then the next week another twelve. I had paid off my entire semester. I remember walking down to the finance office with those checks, just singing glory to God. I couldn't believe it. Then I got another check for another twelve hundred bucks. I went down to Williams Jeweler, and I bought my now wife a, an engagement ring. I remember walking in there with cash threw downs. He threw out some diamonds. The guy named Muhammad. He's like, what do you like to see? And I was like, some diamonds, man. <laughs> throw down some diamonds. I threw down that 1200 bucks. I remember asking Shonda to marry me that December and October. I was, I was about to go home, and I thought, man, my relationship with, my, with Shonda was going to break up, and, and God had provided from October all the way to December, not only for that semester, but the next semester as well, and an engagement ring. I'm here to tell you our God is so good, and he was trying to teach me at that moment how faithful he is to me. It's one thing to learn about God's faithfulness. It's one thing to learn and hear about the doctrines of God and who he is and his character and his attributes. It's another thing to actually experience it. So it was that moment in college, I I began to actually experience God, and that's what God wants for you and for me. God has one mission for your life. You know what that mission is? To save you and to abide with you. That is it. He has one mission. Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He just wants to save you from your sin, and he wants to abide with you afterwards. He wants to sup with you. He stands at the door and knocks, and he wants to spend time with his children, where we cry out, Abba, Father. In Aramaic, Abba means Papa. He's our Papa. We can spend time with him. That's our God. So thankful for that. Now, our passage here reveals some reasons we stray away from that abiding relationship with Jesus. And there are three ways that we're tempted, we're deceived, we're distracted to get off mission with God. And can I tell you, dads, the greatest gift you could give your children is a great relationship with your Savior. You spend time with Jesus, you're going to be the greatest father any kid could ever ask for because you're experiencing the greatest father in your behalf. So I want to show you what distracts us from the mission, abiding relationship with God. First of all, I want you to notice, out of Judas's life, idolatry knocks us off mission. Idolatry knocks us off mission. We find that in verses 43 through 52. We see that Judas uh, was a very interesting character. Here's a man who walked with God and was the, the biggest hypocrite in the Bible. Here, Jesus had chosen him to be one of the 12, and he heard every sermon Jesus ever preached. He saw every single miracle Jesus ever did. Could you imagine walking with Jesus and he, and he feeds 15,000 people with a few loaves and fish? Could you imagine, imagine him when he, when he raised people from the dead? Could you, how, in our minds, like, how could you not follow that? Why would you turn him in? What was more important than Jesus? 
Here's a man who actually walked with him and thought something was more important than Jesus. His problem was an idol was in the way with his relationship with God. Now, we don't see Judas bowing down to an idol. And that's because we sometimes fail to grasp what worship really means as a Christian. So I want to define what an idol is. An idol is anything you deem necessary for your happiness. Sometimes I used to think idleness is is something that I spent a, a large amount of time with. You know, I, by the way, I spend more time with my wife than I do with God. That doesn't mean she's an idol. I spend more time sleeping than I do with God. Amen? <laughs> but that's not an idol. An idol is not how much time you spend with it. An idol is something that you deem necessary for your happiness. For example, some people think, well, if I just buy that car, I'll be happy. If I live in that neighborhood, then I'll be happy. And if, if a pastor would just call me up a few more times in the year, then I'll be happy. And those become idols that distract us and get us off mission with an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And for Judas, you know what his idol was? It was, it was power. It was money. That's what it was. It was position. You say, how do you know that? If you go back to the beginning of chapter number 14, I want you to notice there's a certain woman with an alabaster box, very expensive. And I want you to notice in verse number one, it says in chapter 14, notice, look right there with me. And after two days was the feast of the Passover and of the unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft. But they said, not, one of, uh, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he sat at meat, and there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, a spikenard, very what? Precious. And she break the box and poured it out on his what? On his head. And there were some that had what? Talk to me, church. They had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Do you know who was causing the uproar at that moment right there? It was Judas. In fact, as you, as you read the story, it's pretty amazing. He says in verse number 8, She hath done what she could, and she has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world. That's such a great phrase, isn't it? Uh, then it says this, This also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. We're still speaking of it today. Now notice the next verse. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray her. You know what was more important to Judas? It was money. It's very interesting, this, this thing called money. This thing called idolatry. Here we have a woman who has probably very little. And her, her most prized possession, probably the thing that, that was the most valuable in her, in her home was probably this alabaster box. And she thought Jesus was so much better and so much more value than that alabaster box that she would break it and pour it upon his head. And these people had indignation towards her thinking, man, we could have used that money to, to feed the poor. And they would spiritualize their idolatry. That's what people do. It's very interesting. 
She thought Jesus was of more value than any material thing. Can I tell you, Jesus is so much more valuable than anything you possess, anything you own. If all you had with is Jesus, you have everything. It's interesting. People will pass up the bread of life for a crumb. That's what Judas did. The bread of life. The one who is, who is going to give you life-sustaining power. The one who is going to fulfill you and never hunger again. You'd never thirst again. He passed that up for a crumb. He says, man, if I can't have power and I can't get money from Jesus, he's talking about this death, I better get something from him. And so he sold him for 30 pieces of silver and, and got a little bit of money. And you see here that Judas masked his idolatry with religious facade. And, and he thought, man, uh, we could have used that money to, uh, uh, to feed the poor. And uh, we often do this when we want something from, from God. A lot of times as we worship God and we have an idol in our life, something that we deem necessary for our happiness, we make God an accomplice in our idol worship. We say, God, would you give this to me? Lord, Lord, could you provide this for me? And oftentimes, if we're not careful, what we're asking for is the thing that we think is going to make us happy when Jesus only makes us happy. Are you guys with me this morning? James 4, 4, the Bible says this, Whence comes wars and fightings among you? This is the unasked prayer of a of a sinful man. Notice what it says. From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lust, that war in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire, and you can't obtain, you fight and war, and you have not, because you what? You know why people are struggling today? They're fighting, they're warring, because they simply just don't ask God. Do you know God wants to answer your prayers? He wants to provide for you, as a good father does? But then he goes on to say this. Here's the unanswered prayer of a sinful man. You ask, and receive not because you ask amiss that you may what? Consume it upon your lust. We're saying, God, would you provide this for me? And God says, why would, would, I, why would I provide something for you that you are going to commit spiritual adultery on me with? That's why it says, ye adulterers and adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is what? enmity with god i find it interesting that he uses the word adulterer and adulteresses the world simply means that a system that is dead set against god if we're in love with that or if we think anything of this world is going to make us happy it's an idol there's a fundamental difference in serving god to get something from him and serving him to get more of him let me explain it to you this way how many of you are saved this morning? You're saved, you're born again. That's awesome. I'm in Fresno, California. There's all these saved people. I love it. And uh, how many of you are married? Raise your hand. You're married? It's great. I got married 11 years ago, 11 and a half years ago. You know what I did? I, when I was in college, I found the hottest girl in school, and I started right there. I said, I'll start there, and I'll work my way down. And I got her. It was awesome. And, uh, and I remember the day I got, Josh was actually in my wedding. And I, I remember the day I got married, and I remember standing there, and there she was, here I was, and uh, I looked into her eyes, and I said, I'm going to forsake all others. I said, we said this, till death do us part, in sickness and in health, 
for rich or for poor, I love you, forsaking everybody else. And she said the same thing to me. Oh, that was the, that, that was the second greatest day of my life. The first greatest day of my life is when I got saved. The second greatest day of my life is when I got married. When you got saved, can I tell you something? Here comes the Father. Sends His Son, Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is spotless. Jesus leaves the riches of heaven to come to us poor, wretched sinner like us and says, I want to marry you. And when you got saved, you stood at an altar with God. And and God looked at you and said, I do. And I love you. And I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And And He loves you unconditionally, not because of what you do, but because of who you are. And he looked at you and he says, yeah, I'm going to commit to you forever and ever. And when you got saved, you stood there. And hopefully you said the same thing. And say, God, I, I forsake all others. I don't, I don't need that stuff to be happy. All I need is you. And you, and you looked into his eyes and he said, I, I, I want to believe in you and I, I know I'm a sinner, but would you accept me? And he does, does every single time. And you got married. Now I want you to imagine this. Imagine a husband and a wife, they're driving on their honeymoon, they just got married, and she kind of looks over at her, at her new husband, and he, and he sees, and he's just pumped, he's like, man, we're married, we're together, this is the greatest thing ever, and we're going on our honeymoon, and she looks over at him, and she says this, hey, um, can you just drop me off at my boyfriend's house? The husband would look over and say, what, what are you talking, we just got married, what are you talking about? He said, listen, listen. Just, just drop me off at my boyfriend's house. I really want to see him. And, and she says this, listen, listen. Um, if I ever need anything, I'll call you. If, I, if, uh, if I'm, I'm kind of hurt, maybe my boyfriend's not treating me right, I'll come back to you at times and, and uh, maybe you can give me that. And that's exactly what we do to God. We got married to him and we said, I do, and we got saved, and, and, and we went on this journey together with Jesus, and we kind of look at him and say, hey, listen, um, I'm going to go back to my, my old life, I'm going to go back to the, some of the things that I think are going to make me happy, and, and let me tell you something, uh, when, uh, when I'm lonely, I'll come calling, and, and when I need something, I'll, I'll call, don't worry, and Jesus says, that's not why we got married, we got married to just spend time together. We got married to sup together. We got married to, to, to fellowship together, to love each other, to talk to each other. That's why we got married. There's been so many times in my Christian life where the only time I called God was when I needed something, not just to spend time with Him. And so you see here, Judas could care less about a relationship with Jesus. He cared about what he can get from Jesus. He had an idol. He thought that this thing was going to make him happy. What's really interesting about idolatry is, and this is so interesting, idolatry is, uh, it ruins us. When God is, is its own reward, Christianity becomes thrilling. But we get off mission through God, through idolatry. I have a few things I wanted to say there, but I'm going to hold off because i got so much more to say. But we get off mission through God through idolatry, but we also get off mission through God through 
control. Now, we see here the next group of men. We see these, this, this, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 men who wanted control in their life. Now, how many of you guys have figured out that your plans are not always God's plans? That your thoughts aren't always God's thoughts. That your ways aren't always God's ways. I learned this really valuable lesson in my Christian life. Our, our, our daughter, our oldest daughter, she's eight. When she was four, she got cancer. And I remember um, going through her treatments and all that. I remember getting alone with God and, and saying, God, why would you let this happen? I remember getting to this point in my Christian life at that moment, Pastor Josh, where I said, Lord, she's yours. You're in control of this. And it was, it was such a relief to be able to say, None of, nothing that I have is really mine, not even my life. <laughs> my body's not mine, my church isn't mine, my marriage isn't mine, my kids aren't mine. They're all God's. They're all His. They don't belong to me. That was such a liberating experience for me to know that I don't have to carry the burden of, of the church and of my marriage. They're all His and I give it to Him and He does such a better job being in control of those things than I am in control of those things. Um, my wife and I, we always make plans. And you guys know your pastor, he plans out everything, right? Like everything. And uh, so we plan out some things too. And, and we had this idea of how, um, how we were going to deliver our last baby. We have a nine-week-old baby. And uh, so we have three girls. Her name's Pippa. Pippa Rosalind Cool. And, uh, and my wife, she, uh, thank you, thank you. And um, my wife, she has these plans, you know, like my wife plans everything. She's like, she knows what shoes she's going to wear to the hospital. She has her bags packed. She knows, she knows when she's supposed to go. One night, we were in the house and, and she goes, oh, I think I'm going into labor. I said, no, it's just Braxton Hicks. It's nothing, you know. And, and, uh, and all of a sudden, she, she started to go into this active labor like instantly. And I got on the horn with, with the nurse and and uh, the nurse is like, get her down here quick. And I was like, okay. And, uh, and so we're getting her ready. She says, go get my shoes. Now remember, she's in active labor. She can get mad if she wants. There's such thing as righteous indignation, okay? It's okay. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I go in there. Now I'm a gun real practical. I was like, oh, slippers will work. And so I grab some slippers, you know. She's like, not those shoes. And so I put them, she goes in there and finds these shoes that she's going to wear. Why do you care about what shoes you're wearing? And so, and so I, I, I load my kids in the car, I load my wife, and my wife's in active I mean, She's next to me, and she's going, Aah! pushing. She's pushing in the car. And I said, this is not part of the plan. And I'm on the horn. I hit 105 miles an hour on the freeway trying to get her down there and the nurses are like you better you give her called an ambulance i'm like i was freaking out okay our first two were cesarean c's i mean we just walked in it was like i'm right, having a baby you know this one was not like that so so i I'm, I'm hitting 110 miles an hour on the freeway i get up to the hospital i pull in and uh and i get out and i'm, I'm frantic and i walk through these uh this revolving door it felt like forever i was i was doing this number just come on Finally, I get in. There's like this old security guard. He's like, hey, do you need anything? I'm like, my wife's in labor. And uh, so I go get a wheelchair, and I wheel it out there. And, and uh, all these nurses and stuff come out, and they put her in the wheelchair, and she's screaming. It was like a movie. Josh is she's like, ah, ah. And she gets wheeled into the hospital, and, and as the doors were closing, all you hear is, ah. And this family walks out, and they got these like big eyes, and they're like, whoa. 
And they look at me and I said, I'm just the Uber driver, all right? <laughs> just, that's all I am. And so I go park the car, and me and my, my, my girls, we go in there. Nine minutes later, my wife delivers the baby. And if I didn't hit 110 miles an hour, we'd have had it in the car, I'm telling you. It, was cra- it wasn't part of the plan. For these Sadducees and Pharisees, it, this wasn't part of their plan. They love control. They love to be in control. And they didn't like that Jesus could take that control from them. That's why people hate Jesus today. They don't like Jesus because they don't like the fact that Jesus could have some control in their thinking and in their life and in their marriage and have authority in their That's why they don't like Jesus. Now, what drove their hatred and murder for him was that he was a threat to their control. And they don't think that Jesus was good enough to be in control. Let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus is good enough and perfect enough and powerful enough to be in control of every area of your life? Something that distracts us from the mission of Christ, which is an abiding relationship with Him, is thinking that we need to be in control of our life. We need to be in control of this situation. We need to get control of this church. And we need to get in control of our family. And I'm here to tell you, one of the most liberating experiences you can have as a Christian is say, God, you take control. This is all you. Now, Jesus was not murdered because He healed the lame, Josh. He wasn't murdered because, because the sick became healed and the blind could see. He was not mocked and beaten because people's lives were transformed by the gospel. He was murdered because he was a threat to their supremacy. He was a threat to their control. They wanted to take control over what God created himself. And so you find here in verses 53 through 65, this courtroom experience that they grabbed Jesus and took him down to this courtroom. And it was so illegal. This is in Caiaphas's house. This wasn't even where they should have had court. It was in the middle of the night. And it's interesting because these Pharisees had rules and they followed the rules. But here they broke the rules. They were hypocrites. They were Pharisees. Um, during, these, during a capital punishment crime trial, it had to be done during the day. Here they are doing it at night. In capital punishment cases, they had to be unanimous. History proves that not every person of the Sanhedrin council was actually there. They, they, they were to give three days of rest before a death sentence was carried out, just in case they can give grace to that person. No court was to be in session during the Passover. It was the Passover. They broke the rules. And there had to be witnesses representing both sides. I want you to picture that. So here it is. It's at night. These men, they're just, they're just angry. They hate Jesus because, because he's a threat to their control. And so they said, we've got to kill this guy. And I know we've got to break the rules, but the ends will justify the means, and so we'll just do this. And so they get Jesus together, and, uh, and they, they bring up two false witnesses. All right, you're going to say this, and, and you're going to say this. And it's so, it's so funny because they both contradict themselves. <laughs> it didn't work. Imagine Jesus knowing every thought. He knew all of them so well. He knew every hair that was on their head. He knew, he knew their families intricately. He knew when they were born. He knew their family lineage. He knew all of those people. You know what's interesting about Jesus? Just a side note. He just loved them through that whole thing. Father, for they know not what they do. And they brought in these false witnesses. Now, Jewish law says there has to be witnesses on both sides. You know why they did it by night? So nobody would know? 
you imagine this, Josh? All right, who's your witnesses? We got these two. Oh, he said he was going to build the temple. He's going to tear it down and build it up in three days. And they're like, yeah, let's kill him. And all right, Jesus, do you have any witnesses? The line would be miles long. Yeah? My name is so-and-so. All I know is I was blind. And now I see. Walk out. The next guy would come in and says, all I know is I couldn't walk, and now I can, and he changed my life, and, and, and he's this amazing man, I just love him, he's my God. The next person would walk in, walk in. it'd probably take weeks, Pastor Josh, these people just witnessing about the power of Jesus in their life. It just stirs something within me when I think about the lives Jesus changes, and that night he could have had witnesses lined up for miles. And I can think of people right here in this room right now. You can say, I'd be in that line too. And, and I can tell you what Jesus has done in my life as well. And the reason he's so good in me is because I relinquished the control. And I said, Jesus, you take control. And that's what those people did. The reason why these Pharisees and these Sadducees could not understand the power of God in their life, although they claimed to represent him, is because they couldn't let go of the control. What are you trying to control in your life? What are you trying to hold on to and make right, make perfect, when God says, just let it go, let me take care of that? I understand you've got a plan, I understand you've got to meet with people, I understand, but listen, what are, what are some things in your life right now you just need to let, let God take control over? It, he owns it anyway, and He knows how to take care of it so much better than we do. In Colossians 1.15, the Bible says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. If God can create the universe, don't you think he can take care of your problem? God is much better at being in control of your marriage. God does such a so much better job of taking control of your church. God does such a better job at helping you raise your children. You don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to do this by yourself. That's what this Christian life is all about. It's about abiding with Him and His power and wisdom flowing through you as you act accordingly. Say, Lord, would you help me in this area? I need your wisdom. I need your power. I can't do this on my own. Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing so lord i need you i i relinquish my rights the paradox is when you think you have control you lose it <laughs> and when you lose your control you actually gain control the bible says those that lose their life shall find it and those who think they found their life actually lose their life and so if you want to gain control over your emotions and over your marriage you actually have to lose your life and say god would you take over and so a lot of people today think that they need control over their life, and that's why they're not experiencing this abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what knocks us off mission is idolatry, is control. It's also through shame. Notice with me with Peter in verses 66 through 72. Here's Peter, and he follows Jesus afar off. And, uh, and he gets by this fire, and, and he gets around all these people, and Jesus is in Caiaphas', Caiaphas house, and he's, he's being persecuted. They're smoting him in the face. They're railing on him. 
They're falsely accusing him. And, and, G, and Peter, who I think, I think is well-intentioned, I think he loved Jesus. And he's over there by the fire, and there's all these people around the fire. And I don't know why, Pastor Josh, but I just picture this old, haggard woman with a mole, with the face of an axe. And she's just standing there, and she says, You've been with Jesus. I'm not sure why I picture that, but that's what, that's what comes to mind. This lady says, You've been with him, haven't you? And, and, and he says, No, I don't know the man. Well, he was ashamed. So, I, I, don't, I don't know him. And, and they say, No, no, you're a Galilean. Your speech proves it. And he says, And he starts to cuss. So, I don't know him. Boy, after the cock, threw, the cock crew, and here comes Jesus. He walks by, and, and boy, you remember what Jesus said, and he wept. Do you know what causes us to get off mission? Is we become ashamed of Jesus. We become ashamed of Jesus. Let me ask you this. Are you ashamed of Jesus? And you say, well, I know we're in church, so we're not ashamed. I'm not talking about in church. This is an easy place to be like, I love Jesus and raise my hand and sing. But what about telling other people about the glory of Jesus? About how God has worked in your life? There's some things in my life that I would never go to on my own. Like the Nutcracker. And uh, my wife loves that stuff. She loves it. And uh, it was playing this last December in Grand Rapids. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take my wife to it. I'm going to take her to the Nutcracker. And uh, so, so this is our, uh, part of our anniversary gift, and we ate at this really fancy restaurant downtown at the Amway Grand called Cygnus 27, and we walked down to the, walked down to the convention center and walked in, and, and here's the Nutcracker, and I said, well, you know, this is going to be good, you know, I was like, this is going to be great, and now I would never do this on my own, but she likes it, and so I sat there with her, and, and the whole thing began, and it started, and, uh, and, and it, was, it was starting out with the music and, the, and, the, and these people dancing in tights, just prancing around. About 10 minutes into the show, I, I kind of look over at my wife and said, so, um, so, I think I'm going to talk. <laughs> my wife looks over, she says, it's a ballet. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> so, so for two hours, I watched men in tights prance around I was like, what did I get myself into? And it was the most horrifying thing I've ever experienced in my life. The, the, the main guy, the Nutcracker, man, he had some ham hocks, dude. This guy, like, it, it was crazy. I mean, and, uh, he had the, and I was just like, I couldn't believe it. And my wife would look over, and she's like, are you liking it? I'm like, okay, yeah, sort of, you know. And then, and then part of the song, she'd look over and say, do you remember this song? I said, yeah, that's from Home Alone. <laughs> she said, no, that's the Nutcracker. And we get out of there, and I'm like, man, I would, she's like, what do you think? I was like, well, I wouldn't go by myself. And she goes, let me tell you something. I was like, okay. She goes, she goes now you know how I feel when I watch your football. <laughs> I was like, is that what it's like? She goes, imagine this, imagine this. You know, you watch your football, we bring you nachos. Imagine me and my girlfriend sitting around the TV watching ballet and saying, hey, Cody, go get me some nachos. I said, is that what it's like? And she said, yeah. I was like, oh, my word, that's terrible. I don't know if I like that. You see, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the Nutcracker by myself, but I went because of who I was with. I love her. It wasn't about the Nutcracker. It wasn't even about the dinner. It was about her. You cannot live the Christian life without Jesus. Trying to live the Christian life without Christ is, trying to, is like trying to live without breathing. 
It's futile. You can't do it. You're just going to walk around frustrated. This is the hardest thing to do. You can't do it. You need him. And there's things you would never do by yourself, but you'll do it because you're with Jesus. It's what he likes. It's what he prefers. And so here we see, we see uh, that Peter was ashamed and you can't live the Christian life by yourself. It's very interesting. I like what Paul said in Romans 1.16. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I, I find this so interesting because Paul says, I'm not ashamed. You know why Paul wasn't ashamed? How could he be after what Christ had done for him? He says, all the things I thought were gain, I count as loss, that I may win Christ. And he looked back on those things he thought were, would make him happy. He says, I count them but dung. In our vernacular, that's poo-poo. It's nothing. But when I won Christ, I won everything. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because what it's done for me, I can't help but want that for everybody else. You see what I'm getting at? When you experience Christ the way Pastor Josh preaches, you can't help but want that for everybody else. I just have this abiding relationship, and he gives me a peace that passeth all understanding. He gives me a joy unspeakable and full of glory, and I'm just excited to be with Jesus, and I just want that for everybody else. That's how you get. That's what happens in that abiding relationship. It's an overflow, and when you sit down with your kids, fathers, you sit down with them, you can't but share the attributes and joys of Jesus with them. Because he's been so good to you in your life. Did you know Jesus is not ashamed of you? Did you know that? Now I want you to think about this. I'm going to end the sermon right here. He who is rich became poor, that, that we who are poor might become rich. Jesus left heaven's throne, he left the riches of heaven to come down to save us. And he was never ashamed of you and I. Now think about this. God, who created the universe with the span of his hand, who knows everything, transcends time and space. He came down to this, the dust bowl of this earth. He never had a place to lay his head. When people walk by, they make fun of him. But it didn't matter to him. You know why? Because he cared about you. All he could think about was you. And in this story that I read this morning, Jesus, they put a bag over his head and they beat him in the face. When they took him out to Pontius Pilate and after they had accused him and declared the crucifixion of Jesus, they, they whipped his back. Why would he do that? Why would he go through that shame? You think of the shame, the experience of people wagging their heads and yelling, crucify him, crucify him. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 2, that he counted it a joy, actually, because he was never ashamed of you. It's interesting that we are ashamed of him, but he was never ashamed of us. They nailed him to the cross, and the Bible says they would wag their heads, and they spit upon him, they spit in his face. What shame? We've never experienced any shame like that. But he did it joyfully. Because he, listen, he, can I tell you something, man? He loves you. He cares about you. He was never, he's never ashamed to say, that's my son. That's my daughter. You're mine. He's never ashamed of that. Why would we be ashamed of God? Who cares what the critics say? Who cares what the pundits say? 
Jesus is mine. And man, when that abiding relationship continues to grow and grow, this world grows strangely dim. Hebrews 12, it says this, looking unto Jesus, that's where it all starts. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. As he faced the cross, he was so consumed with you to ever think about himself. When you're consumed with Christ, this, this world, is, is, uh, it grows strangely dim. It's, it's not as appealing anymore. I want to tell you something this morning. What lies before us and what lies behind us are small matters compared to what lies within us. Greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. Now the question this morning is this. It's not this. It's not, how is my love for God? That's not the question this morning. The question is, what is the truth about God's love for me? What is the truth about God's love? God loves you even though you're a sinner. God loves you not because of what you do, but because of who you are. And there's nothing you've done in the past that will make God love you less. And there's nothing you could do to make God love you more. God loves you for who you are, my friend. And He's not ashamed to save you. He's not ashamed to call you His son or His daughter. He loves you unconditionally. He looked down at you and me and He says, they need a Savior. And so He came and died upon a cross. Jesus, God Himself, was born of a virgin, lived 33 and a half years on this earth, voluntarily, joyfully, unashamedly died on a, car, on a cross, shed his blood, and that blood became the remission or the forgiveness of our sins. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there's no remission of sins. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'll never forget September 1st, 2001. I got on my knees and I said, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner I know that I can't get there on my own. I know it's not about going to church. I know it's not about being good. There's none good, no, not one. So Jesus, would you save me from my sin? And Jesus gladly and unashamedly saved me that day. Let me ask you this. When did you get saved? When were you saved? You say, oh, I've been going to church for a long time. That's great you've been going to church for a long time. When did you get saved? Say, Pastor, no, no, you don't understand. I, I, uh, uh, um, I, I'm a pretty good person. That's good. I'm glad you think you're a really good person. When did you get saved? Say, Pastor, no, no you, listen. I said, when did you get saved? I got baptized 10 years ago. That's great that you got baptized 10 years ago. Let me ask, when did you get saved? For me, I could look back and know that I got saved September 1st, 2001, because I called upon Jesus to save me. And can I tell you, if you don't know for sure that heaven's your home, you can be saved today. If you're questioning whether or not God loves you, can I tell you something? God loves you unconditionally. If you're a Christian this morning, let me encourage you with this. God wants an abiding relationship with you. And don't let idolatry, don't let this control or shame get in the way of His mission for you in your life. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.